This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. My hope is that the next leader in Senegal will actually follow constitutionalism and not try and change Senegal from being the most pluralistic, stable, multi-party country in West Africa. That's Alex Vines, who leads the Africa program at Chatham House on Senegal's delayed presidential election. Details coming up also. A new UN report accuses both Sudan's warring parties of horrific abuses against civilians. And marathon world record holder Kelvin Kiptum, who was killed in a car crash, was buried today in western Kenya. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Most candidates in Senegal's delayed presidential election and a large group of civil society activists said today they would refuse to take part in talks proposed by President Macky Sall to decide a date for the vote he postponed earlier this month. Sall is facing pressure inside and outside the country to set a date after his abrupt delay of the February 25th poll triggered weeks of political crisis. Reporter Alfa Jallo in Dakar tells VOA's Carol Van Dam that in a televised interview with five media outlets late yesterday, he put off a decision on the date until after talks with political and social actors early next week. He reiterated that he is going to step down when his mandate ends at the, on the 2nd of April. But actually, he didn't say when he is going to do that. He said that that is just going to be determined when he meet the opposition and all the political, political actors during what he called a you know, consultation, which he said he will, it will start on Monday going through our Tuesday. So if they reach a consensus, then he can just set a date for the election. But he said that he has no interest to extend his mandate. But on the other hand, too, he cannot just leave this country when the country hasn't set a date for the election when there is no president to replace him. Did he also say that he didn't think that there would be time to hold elections before April 2nd? Yes, he said that it all depends on the outcome of the consultation that he has invited the political actors. He said that maybe that's why he said that he, he is not going to drag it so long. It starts on Monday, Tuesday, and uh, if they agree, then they can set a date. Although there are so many opposition leaders, especially the presidential candidate, whose candidacy has been validated by the Constitutional Council, some of them have started, you know, fixing their own dates. Some of them are saying the election can be fixed on the 3rd of March or some of them saying on the 10th of March. I mean, balloting, maybe they can be able to do that before the expiry of President Saar's mandate on the 2nd of April 2024. And what have these presidential candidates said about Maki Saar's decision to do this, to delay the elections? Yes, some of them are saying that Makital is just trying to buy time. Some of them are saying that he is just disrespecting the Constitutional Council recommendation. 
that I mean he has to fix the election in the nearest you know or in the best you know time or he has to fix the election without delay. They see they, they don't know or they are they don't know or they don't see what President Makisal have to say when he meet these political actors in this two days consultation because there's no room as you know that the Muslim holy month of Ramadan will just be, will be kicking uh, in two weeks time. And if they are supposed to be, you know, I mean, a campaign period, most of the presidential aspirants will be giving at least according to the Constitution 21 days period to crisscross the country. But this time around, that is not going to be ha- happening. Maybe the time will be limited. Maybe they will be giving it 10 days or 15 days. Was this meeting that he had with the reporters, was it a back and forth where reporters were allowed to ask questions or did he just basically make a speech? And leave. No, no, no. All the, yeah, all the four media houses were allocated time to ask questions. And uh, basically, they have asked the same question. And the same question they, they've been asking the president is, you know, when he, when he is going to switch the, the election and whether he will respect the constitution that after the expiry of his I mean, mandate, um, he will step down. He said that he will certainly step down, but he also cannot, you know, make sure that he will step down when a new president is not elected. That is reporter Alfred Jallo speaking to VOA's Carol Van Dam from Dakar, Senegal. As we just reported earlier in the week, 15 candidates in Senegal's delayed presidential election accused President Macky Sall of ill will and said they will take action to ensure a new poll is swiftly arranged. For an in-depth analysis, I asked Alex Vines, who leads the Africa program and is currently Managing Director for Risk, Ethics and Resilience at Chatham House. Why did Macky Sall try to delay the vote? Well, that's such a good question. Um, Why is he trying to delay the the presidential election? I mean, thankfully, he's accepted the the ruling of the Constitutional Council that, that he needs to uh, have an election by the, the time that he steps step down, that his mandate expires. So that is that is progress. But there's plenty of other uncertainties, uh, including whether opposition candidates like uh, the, one of the leading opposition leaders, Songo, is released from detention. Uh, and there is a real tension in, in Senegal around all of this. So, so it, it is high drama, but at least Macky Sall has recognized that, that his original plan, which was to have elections in December this year, that uh, he could not continue to, to, to pursue that ambition, given that the, uh, the Constitutional uh, Council has ruled that that was illegal. So it is important that, 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 that Senegalese institutions uh, are, are shown to, to, to actually have effectiveness. And, and so this is certainly an important step back from an even worse crisis that we could have seen. Alex, uh, in a West African region where four countries are currently under military rule, Senegal is, is seen by the international community as one of the few examples of a functioning democracy. So if Senegal were to become another authoritarian state, many fear the instability that would ensue would threaten regional security. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Senegal is an anchor state. That's what we would describe it in, in the policy world. And unlike its neighbors, it has never had a coup. So it is completely immune to, to that so far. And there is real concern amongst the Senegalese themselves of erosion, uh, potentially of civil liberties. 
So uh, nobody wants to see a pluralistic anchor state like Senegal deteriorate. Investors are looking closely at Senegal. There are some big projects, including on, on, on kind of gas investments, where people are beginning to wonder, you know, what the country's trajectory is. At the moment, the assumption is that the country will pass through this crisis in the short to midterm. And so money is sticking with Senegal. But it just goes to show the vulnerability of the country longer term uh, if this was to continue. And, and so let's say Banki Sal uh, actually uh, allows the presidential election to go. Will he be running for another term or wh- what is the scenario? Uh, Sal has been very clear that he won't run again. So that has, he's been consistent in sending that message. Sal was looking for a, a, a protege and had originally put his faith in Mr. Barr, but increasingly that looked like a fraying relationship. And also Barr did not seem to necessarily carry the popularity he was hoping for. And so um, he has a a problem now of trying to find a candidate that that, that he would be comfortable with to succeed him. So that, I think, is one of the, the issues that is, is, uh, Macky Sall is, is, is having trouble over right now. So at the end of the day, it's all about Macky Sall. Yes, it is about Macky Sall. Um, and he clearly did have originally ambitions to go for a third term. But uh, let, let's be grateful here that the, that, that, uh, the vibrancy of Senegalese society uh, and the strength of its institutions have in the end uh, curtailed those ambitions. It is a paradox that Macky Sall himself had campaigned against his predecessor, Mr. Wad, who had also changed the constitution and had argued that the constitution now allowed him to run for what uh, would be a third term, but, um, but in his view would have been the start of a, of a new tenure. But but, um, Senegalese protested on this uh, and were led by Macky Sall, who then prevailed and and, and kind of won an election. And so it's a bit sad that this seems to be circular at the moment. My hope is that the next leader in Senegal will will actually follow constitutionalism uh, and uh, not try and uh, change Senegal from being the the most pluralistic, stable, multi-party country uh, in, in, in West Africa. That was Alex Vines, who leads the Africa program and is currently managing director for risk, ethics and resilience at Chatham House. He talked to me from London. A new report by the United Nations Human Rights Office accuses both of Sudan's warring parties of committing horrific violence, violations and abuses against the country's civilian population with some potentially amounting to war crimes. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. A new food analysis by the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, a very scientific evaluation of food security, released today warns 18 million people across Sudan face acute hunger. It says this is the highest level of hunger ever recorded during the current harvest season, a period when more food is available. United Nations agencies say ongoing conflict, escalating violence, low agricultural production – 
High food prices, climate shocks, and displacement are exacerbating the food crisis. Adam Yao is the deputy food and agriculture representative in Sudan. He says hunger in this war-torn country will reach new levels during the lean season in May when food stocks are at their lowest. Speaking from Sudan's Senar state, he told journalists that more financial support and unimpeded access to people trapped in conflict hotspots are needed to ward off the worst. The Sudanese people require more support, more than ever, our immediate action to preserve the life and livelihood of rural Sudanese community is absolutely uh, crucial. The longer we take to respond, the more life we expose to the imminent threat of famine. Today marks eight months since rival generals from the Sudanese Armed Forces and Paramilitary Support Response Forces plunged Sudan into a conflict described as one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The World Food Program says the war has unleashed terror, violence, displacement, and immeasurable suffering. Despite this, WFP spokesperson for Sudan, Lenny Kensley, says the crisis is not getting the international focus focus and attention that is warranted. Speaking from Nairobi, Kenya, Kensley says regular and safe humanitarian access to civilians in areas worst hit by violence is inadequate, as is international financial support for a crisis of this magnitude. Since the start of the conflict, WFP has provided life-saving assistance to over 5 million people, preventing an even worse deterioration of food security especially in eastern and northern Sudan. Yet this is only scratching the surface compared to the immense needs that we are seeing on ground. WFP reports only one in five people most urgently in need of food assistance in the Khartoum area has received it since the conflict started. It says it has been able to provide food aid to half a million people from Chad to West and Central Darfur since August. However, it notes WFP has been unable to provide desperately needed food to people in other parts of Darfur since June. This because armed groups have refused guarantees of safe access to the volatile areas. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. And for more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA, radio and TV programs, and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. On the 13th anniversary of Libya's February 17th revolution, U.S. Ambassador Richard Norland urged all Libyan leaders to participate in an honest dialogue that leads Libya towards a new pivotal moment in its history and a better future that the Libyan people deserve. Wolfgang Porstai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi the feasibility of starting an honest dialogue among Libyan rivals. I would not be so optimistic. The conditions for such a dialogue are simply not there. The security situation, especially in the greater Tripoli region, is getting increasingly difficult. In Sabia, we have seen two larger fightings last week, one next to the 
strategically important refinery. In Tripoli, there was a fight around the checkpoint in the west of the city. And on February 17, the date of the revolutionary celebrations, there was a massacre of 11 members of the Mashashia tribe in Abu Slim in southern Tripoli. Two of those 11 victims were members of the so-called SSA, the stability support apparatus, one of the most powerful militias. It is not clear if this was just a crime between rival militias or if this was an internal affair uh, within the SSA or this was something between enemies of the Mashashia tribe and the Mashashia. On the political side, the opposition to the paper in his hometown Misrata is growing, but not only in his hometown, hometown. More and more people demand him to resign. The political dialogue, which was initiated by UN Essa uh, Patiyi, who wanted to have five party talks, is more or less gone. There is no chance that this, that this could take place. The reason is that four out of the five parties invited to these talks said that they will participate only under certain preconditions, and those preconditions are unacceptable to the others. The petroleum facility guards in Misrata, in the paper's hometown, in Savia, where the only one refinery is located, in Suavara, where there is the starting point of the Greenstream gas pipeline to Italy, threatened to block the various oil and gas infrastructures. They demand higher payments and they demand some uh, bettering of the social circumstances. Altogether, this is a nice wish from Norland, but unfortunately, currently not realistic. U.S. Embassy in Libya confirmed the participation of a delegation from the Libyan Navy and the Maritime Security Workshop for the U.S. Navy in Africa. The embassy said, we look forward to continuing to engage professional Libyan naval officers from all over the country in their quest to improve security in the Libyan maritime domain. How difficult is it for the U.S. to influence developments in Libya, especially in comparison with Turkey in the West and Russia's uh, presence in the East? I would say very difficult, extremely difficult. While on one side the United States is rightly worried about the Russian presence in the East of Libya, they are about to use Libya as a logistic base and the springboard for the mercenary operations of Wagner and in the future of the Russian Africa Corps in sub-Saharan Africa. Their means are very limited. The U.S. intends to drag the LNA away from Russian influence or at least to contain it. But under the current framework conditions, an arms embargo, so the U.S. cannot deliver arms to any of the war infections in Libya, keeping in mind the exorbitant corruption in Libya, which makes it difficult to donate money or to launch projects. And with the limited economic interest of American companies in getting engaged in Libya, the position of the United States to influence things is not really good. Using just its sticky power won't be enough. And invitations like to workshops or to low-scale military exercises won't be uh, the right means to achieve this goal. So in reality, the United States does not have much to offer in comparison to Russia and Turkish military hard power, which is needed or perceived as needed by the opposing sides. In a nutshell, it is extremely difficult for the United States right now to influence the developments in Libya. That was Wolfgang Poshtai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA's analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. Marathon world record holder Calvin Kiptoum, who was killed this month along with his coach Garvez Hakizimana in a car crash, was buried today in his hometown in Chepkorio in western Kenya. 
Mourners remembered Kiptum as a humble, talented, and hard-working athlete. VOA's Nairobi Bureau Chief Maria Madiallo has the report. Family members, friends, top dignitaries, and thousands of others showed up Friday to say farewell and pay a final tribute to Kevin Kiptum. Kenya's President William Ruto was among the speakers. In Kelvin, we saw the future of athletics in Kenya. And Kelvin has stood out not just as a great athlete, but more importantly, as a good person. He was ambitious, disciplined, and focused. Kiptum, who was just 24 when he died, touched many, including Brian Chebby, a resident of the runner's home, El Geo, Maraquet County. Chebby spoke to VOA after signing Kiptum's condolence book for Athletics Kenya, the country's sports governing body. Kelvin Kiptum is a guy of capabilities. Running was his passion, actually. So he motivated us. That's why when he passed, he passed away, it was a great pain for us. So we can't just send him off that way. So I had to come and represent the rest of my colleagues. Other messages in the book range from rest well champ to the greats never die. They live in us and keep us going. Kiptum accomplished much in his short life, including setting a world record marathon time of two hours, 35 seconds in Chicago last October, beating the previous record holder, Kenya's Iliud Kipchoge. Earlier on social media, Kipchoge said he was deeply saddened by the sudden death of an athlete who had a whole life ahead of him to accomplish incredible greatness. That feeling was echoed by one of Kenya's fastest sprinters, Ferdinand Amanyala, who told VOA the world lost Kiptum too soon. I was so touched by what happened because I can relate. I can relate that, you know, how ambitious athletes are when they start doing professional athletics and how many goals they've set for themselves. So that was a very tragic thing that happened. It's important for young people to know that for an athlete, rising to the top can be a Herculean task, he said. It's a lot of work because it took me five years to run under 10 seconds. So that's five years of consistent training, discipline, hard work, and a lot of challenges in between. So it's not an easy thing to rise to the top and be among the top in the world. Paul Tuitoik is the chair of Athletics Kenya University Division. The whole athletics family is definitely devastated. And all our top athletes are mourning, including our top marathoners. Of course, Kenyans were waiting to see what will happen at the Paris Olympics. Tuitoik told VOA he was hoping Team Kenya with top athletes such as Kiptum, Kipchoge, Amanyala and others would scoop a few medals at the upcoming Summer Olympics in Paris. Meanwhile, he said the world can participate in shaping the legacy of Kiptum. I feel the family in conjunction with the government and Athletics Kenya can actually work on this so that they can create a legacy for him so that he can be remembered because he has already put marathon running in the world in another level. And Kiptum was hoping to do even better by becoming the first human to run a full marathon in under two hours. He was an only child and leaves behind two children and a widow who, in tears, said that Kiptum was the love of her life and was the best husband and father to their two children. She said he will be missed. Mariama Jalu, VOA News, Nairobi. Here's what's coming up on African News tonight. 
the King of Belgium is in the Democratic Republic of Congo for a historic visit. A court in South Africa has rejected a Mozambique extradition request for former finance minister... And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. <laughs>